Sometimes we sing a song, a hymn called, Open My Eyes That I May See. And the verses of that song say, Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Open my ears that I may hear voices of truth thou sendest clear. And while the wave notes fall on my ear, everything false will disappear. Open my mouth and let me bear gladly the warm truth everywhere. Open my heart and let me prepare love with thy children thus to share. Now what I like about that song best is the desire it expresses. It desires basically three things. It desires to hear from God, uh, a desire to get something from God's word, and a desire to then share what it is that God has shown them from the word, what God has spoken to them about. And I think about that song, I think every disciple of Jesus should have those same three desires. We should have a desire to get something from God's Word every time that we get into it, whether it's in our own personal study time or in Sunday school or when we gather for a regular church service. We should desire to hear God speak, to know that it's God guiding us and leading us in our life. And we should have a desire really to do something for God, to tell others what God has said, what Christ has done, what they can do to come to know Him as their Savior. Not only should we desire these things, we should be determined to experience them. That we will do what it takes to experience these things in our lives. We see this sort of determination in Ezra tonight. So open your Bible to Ezra chapter 7. It's page 366 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the whole chapter tonight because the whole chapter is a part of what we're talking about, but we're really mostly going to look at the first ten verses tonight. It says, Now after these things, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Ashua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe of the law of God, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests, according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the Levites, the priests, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethinim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinance in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words and the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra. The priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree, a decree that all those people of Israel and the priests and the Levites of my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand. And whereas you are to carry the silver and the gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. 
And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in the province of Babylon, along with the free will offerings of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls and rams and lambs, with their grain offerings, their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against this realm and against the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nephinim, nor servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, and such as know the laws of your God, to teach those who do not know them. And whatever, whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Blessed is the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing in this king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And he has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. The title of the message tonight is Determined. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come tonight and we bow in your presence and we desire to meet with you. Father, we desire to know that as we have gathered in your name, we have sung your praise and we are looking at your word that you are here in our midst. Let your Holy Spirit come and let him open our hearts and give us ears to hear that, Lord, we could take your word tonight, we would apply it to our lives and we would begin to live it out. Let us be different. Because of what's happened in this place tonight, fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Use me, Father, to advance your kingdom, to help and encourage your people, God. Be present, be powerful, and just be with us in ways that we would know it was you. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the book of Ezra tells us the story of two returns from Babylonian captivity. The first is under Zerubbabel. In chapters 1 through 6, which we just finished, it culminates in them basically getting the temple built. And the second return under Ezra, it is to kind of more or less to finish out the temple and to rebuild the spiritual condition of the people. Right, And that starts in chapter 7, what we're looking at tonight. Now, Ezra 7 begins by introducing us to Ezra. Right, We're given several facts about him. In verses 1 through 5, we're told that he is of the lineage of Aaron. We're told in verse 6 that he is a, a skilled scribe in the law of God. And in verse 11, that he is an expert in all the words and all the commandments of the Lord. Now, what we know is that at some point, Ezra felt God leading him to go back to Jerusalem. And as I said, to rebuild the spiritual condition of the people. In order to do this, Ezra would need a lot of stuff. First and foremost, he would need the king's permission. right? Because the kings had absolute authority over the subjects and for Someone who was a, a conquered people to up and go back to the land that they were deported out of was a significant thing and it would require the king's permission. 
But not only would it require the king's permission for Ezra to go back, it would require permission for other people to go back. For Ezra could not do it alone. There took other people to kind of get things going, to keep it moving. And it was going to require a significant amount of money and stuff in order to make this happen. Now we're told in verse 6 that the king granted Ezra all of his requests. Which is significant. We read what the king wrote in verses 12 through 25. And the king gave a lot. There was all the, all the people of Jer- that, were, that were Israelites that wanted to go back, they were free to. The Israelites that stayed were encouraged to give gold and silver and things to do that. The king had given stuff. He had opened up the treasuries in all of Babylon. So Ezra need go anywhere in Babylon, present that letter to any treasury, and they would give him anything he wanted up to the prescribed limits that were set by the king. Now, the king Artaxerxes is not in any way, shape, form, or fashion a follower of the Lord God of heaven. So why would that king, why would he allow this? Why would he do all of this? Now, we know from verse 27 and verse 28 that it was the Lord God who had put that in the king's heart to do all of those things. But something else that I noticed as I was studying the passage, and it's highlighted all throughout Ezra chapter 7 at the end of verse 6, says, according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So the king granted all of Ezra's requests, according to the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. They began their long journey back, and they made it fine according to what we see in verse 9, and they did it according to the hand of his God that was upon him. And then in verse 28, Ezra was encouraged because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Right, And really that is the key to all that's gone on with Ezra. Ezra's success in getting the letter and getting free and being able to have all of this stuff was the fact that the hand of his God was upon him. And that's the kind of the theme throughout this. But what stood out besides that was verse 10. Right, because verse 10, it, it gives us what I would guess you would call the key. What was it about Ezra that caused the hand of the Lord his God to be upon him? Right, so he made the journey back according to the good hand of, the Lord, of, the, of his God upon him. For because Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinance in Israel. Right in, in the New King James, it said Ezra had prepared his heart. Most other translations say that he was determined. From what I, I found in my studies, I think determined is probably the better translation of the, the Hebrew word there. But Ezra had determined to study the law. Ezra had determined to do the law. And Ezra had determined to teach the law. That, that is essentially what we see there. And all of his determination... It was in devotion to God's word, right? He had, he had a determined devotion to God's word. And so because of that, God's hand was upon him. So do we want the hand of the Lord our God to be upon us as we see with Ezra? If so, then we need to learn the lesson from Ezra that God's hand is on those who have a determined devotion to his word. God's hand is on those who have a determined devotion to His Word. 
God's hand was on everything Ezra had done and will continue to do throughout the rest of the book of Ezra and even into Nehemiah because Ezra was determined to be devoted to God's work. Now, I want the hand of the Lord my God to be upon me in every area of my life. I assume you come out on Wednesday night because you also want the hand of the Lord your God to be upon you in every area of your life. And what we learn is that there is a way. We can't make God put His hand upon us and bless us in these ways. But we can position ourselves, do certain things that make it far more likely the hand of the Lord our God will be upon us. And it's in having a determined devotion to His Word. Ezra 10, it gives us three ways to express a determined devotion to God's Word. Number one, determined to study God's Word. Right, That's the first thing we see. Ezra had determined... To seek the law of the Lord. He was determined to study God's word. He wanted to have more than a superficial knowledge of what God's word had said. Now, again in his day, to me I think that it's important for us to see how how much of a time-consuming sacrifice this was for Ezra. Because Ezra likely did not have a copy of the Bible like we have. Right? He didn't have electronic devices that he could whip out 14 different translations on it. Right? There, there does seem, because Ezra is coming back with a copy of the law, so it does seem there was a copy of God's law in Babylon. But most likely that is the only copy there is. Right? And most likely, if it's like it was in other times, it is centrally located. Right, so for Ezra to go and study this one copy of God's law, he has to go wherever it is that the community has decided to keep it. He has to position himself there, and then he has to get into it, to memorize it, to study it, to, I don't know, take notes or whatever it is that he was doing, so that he would know what it was. Because he wanted to have more than a superficial knowledge of God's word. And it says in verse 11 that he, in fact, he was an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord. And of the statutes to Israel. Now to become an expert in God's word. It took a significant amount of time. And Ezra spent a lot of time. As a student. Of God's word. But we too. Must have that sort of determination. To study God's word. We must be determined. To study God's word. No matter what. One of my favorite verses on that is 2 Timothy 2. Be diligent. To present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, there are three facets of this to see. First, we're told to be diligent. Right? The picture there is work hard. In fact, some translations say work hard. Right? So the idea of be diligent there, it's not of a a cursory examination. It's not a a minute or two every day. It, It is putting forth significant effort. So that we can rightly divide the word. That we can understand what it means. And then we can explain it to others. But to to further the idea that it's a lot of work. We're actually called workers. Right? So a worker. And the work in this case. It's not in sharing the gospel. The work in this case. Is not in. You know. Saving the lost. Restoring the prodigals. Healing broken hearts. And all of those other things that we've been talking about. The work in this case is being able to rightly divide the Word, being able to understand and apply it. So we are to be workers in doing this. 
And we're to do this so that we can properly understand it and properly explain it. Now, this is what Scripture, this is what God would expect out of us. This is what Jesus would expect out of us as His followers. Now, this is more than reading a devotion. This is more than listening to a sermon. This is to consistently be in Scripture on your own, seeking to learn all that you can. And I, I do like the wording because if we're going to be able to rightly divide the word, to properly understand and explain, it is going to take a lot of work on our parts. Biblical knowledge and understanding, it does not come on accident. Right? We don't just sort of drift our way through the Christian life and come up with a deep and a, an abiding knowledge of God's word, be able to rightly divide it. We, we don't do it accidentally. Right? It's not just something that, whoa, I can't believe I know all that about the Bible. I just sort of absorbed it by sitting in church and, and by reading a devotion every couple of weeks. We don't get it like that. If we want to really know what God has said to, to be able to rightly divide the word, we have to put forth the effort. If we want God's hand to be upon us, we have to be students of the word. If we are not consistent in our personal study of Scripture, we should not be surprised when God's hand is not upon our lives. D.L. Moody, one of my heroes of the faith, he wrote something about this that I like. He said, I never saw a fruit-bearing Christian who was not a student of the Bible. If a man neglects his Bible, he may pray and ask God to use him in his work, but God cannot make use of him, for there is not much there for the Spirit to work upon. If we desire God to work in us and through us and for us, we have to have His Word in our heart. The only way to have His Word in our heart is to be diligent students of the Word. When we study God's Word, we should always also study it expectantly. Right? We are looking at the very words of God to us. We should come expecting that God will speak to us. That God will show us something from His Word. That every time... We get in here, we are going to learn something we didn't know. We're going to be challenged in a way we didn't think. Where that something in our life is going to be different because we are meeting with God in His Word. And in order to have that sort of an expectation, we should pray. We should pray for God to guide us every time that we open up His Word. We see this frequently in the Psalms. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day long. David's prayer is for God to guide him in his truth. He wants God to direct him in his path to show him what to do in his life. And he asks God to teach him. Now one of the keys to, to teaching, it is to be open. It is to be humble. It is to be teachable. Right? In fact, a few verses later, David expresses this very idea, the humble, that God guides in justice. The humble, he, he teaches in his way. Have you ever tried to teach someone, and lo and behold, they already knew it all? Right? When we were in the army, privates who come out of basic training, they, they are they're as dumb as a box of rocks. They honestly know very, very little about how to be a soldier. But because they've graduated from basic training and maybe gone to airborne school, they show up thinking that they have a lock on all of this and everybody ought to be learning from them. 
And it is it is nearly impossible to teach them anything until at some point they hurt themselves, humiliate themselves or get into some massive trouble for doing something dumb. And all of it could have been prevented if they just listened to the soldiers that have been there longer than them that knew what needed to be done. But in their pride, they could not be taught. And I think something like that can happen with us as we seek to study and learn about how to live for the Lord. Right? And it can happen, I think, in a number of ways. It can happen as we've been Christians a while. You know, we've been Christians a while, maybe if we've had a consistent time of God's Word and we read through the Bible in a year and we've done it for several years, it's easy to think, well, I'm probably not going to learn anything because I've, I've read the Bible through 15, 16, 17, 18 times. I know what it says. I'm not going to learn anything new. And when I come to the Bible with that attitude, chances are I'm right. I'm not going to learn anything. Right? Because God teaches the humble. He guides them in His way. Right? It can also happen, though, not because I think I know so much about the Word, but just because I think I know so much. Right? I know what I believe, and I know that what I believe is right. Now, I don't know what the Bible says, but I know that I'm right about what I believe. And I know that the way I live is the way I'm going to live, and it's right. Not, not, I don't know what the Bible says about it, but I know that's what I believe, and that's how I'm going to live. And so very often we come with that attitude. And so we get nothing out of it. We, get, we don't grow. We, don't, we aren't changed. We aren't challenged. And it's not because God isn't speaking, and it's not because the Word isn't living and active. It's because of our pride. Our pride blocks us from being able to receive anything from the Lord. But when we know that we need God, we need His guidance, we need His leadership, then no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter how many times we've read through the Word, we can always learn something new each and every time. If we want God's hand to be upon us in our lives, we must determine we're going to study His Word. And if we're going to study His Word, we must ensure that we have teachable hearts. Our hearts must be attentive, attentive to His Word and to His Spirit. One of my favorite preachers of days gone by was a man by the name of John Stott. And he made two statements about the importance of Scripture in our lives that are significant. He says, It is made plain throughout Scripture that the health of God's people determine or depend on their attentiveness to His Word. But our spiritual health, not just as a church, but as individual Christians, it is dependent on our attentiveness, our ability to hear and learn from God's Word. Because the moment we start to not hear from this, we start to drift from this. Spiritual health declines. And the other one is just for the church in general, but it says a deaf church is a dead church. And that is an unalterable principle, he says. I think it's true. A lot of times when you find churches that die, they die because of pride. They have got to the place where they no longer can hear and learn and apply and change because of what is seen in God's Word. They know it all. They live it all. They've got it all. And if you, and if you want to be at all like they are, just do what they do. Live like they live. Talk like they talk. And I can almost promise you, when you find a church filled with people like that, you find a church that is on its deathbed. And before long will be an empty building or a museum. We must be people that are attentive to God's Word. So what do you expect when you open up God's Word? What do you expect when you come to church? Do you expect that God will speak to you? Do you open the Bible expecting God to use His Word to make you more like Jesus? And if not, 
Why not? I believe we should. I believe as disciples of Jesus who are filled with the Spirit of the living God, who is the the teacher who guides us into all truth, Jesus says. Every time we open the Word, God will speak if we have the right attitude. So God's hand is on those who have a determined devotion to His Word, and a determined devotion to the Word is seen as we study God's Word. Secondly, determined to obey God's Word. And that's what we see with Ezra. Ezra determined to seek the law, And to do it. Whatever God's word said. That's what Ezra was going to do. If it said to do this. Ezra was going to do it. If it said to not do this. Ezra was not going to do it. He didn't set any limits on it. And and I I think we can see that he didn't set any limits on it. By the fact he moved from Babylon to Jerusalem. right? Because I don't know what he did in Babylon. I have no idea. But I I think I can say with, with certainty. That his life in Babylon was easier than his life in Jerusalem was going to be. Because to get from Babylon to Jerusalem, it was a long walk. I mean, they had a several month journey to get there. I've never walked anywhere for four months. But I'm going to guess that is a difficult thing to do. Then when he got there, he was going to find difficult work to stir up the people, to get things going. Opposition he would face. None of those things would be going on. In Babylon. So there was a a determination that whatever God said, that's what he was going to do. And I think probably we would say from God's word, he learned that the people of God were meant to be in Jerusalem, the city of David. So he determined to do what needed to be done for there. He was going to do more than read God's word. He was going to live it. And that also is the example for us that we are meant to obey God's word, to do What it says. Now a sad fact of the world that we live in today. Is that when many people hear the idea. Or the teaching or preaching about being obedient to God's word. The first word that comes into their mind is legalism. Right for many in our church. In our world today. Not our church. I didn't mean it like that. Many in the church today. Obedience is a synonym for legalism. If you begin to say. Thus says the word of God. So you ought to do it. What you're saying is. I'm a legalist. Be This way so you can earn your righteousness from God. But that's not the same thing. Obedience and legalism are not the same thing. Legalism is an attempt to earn God's favor. Legalism is an attempt to earn righteousness from God. Legalism says, if I do all of these things, God will love me. If I do all of these things, God will give me grace and God will save me. Right? That's legalism. And Scripture teaches that legalism actually separates us from Jesus. Because Scripture teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Legalism is completely contrary to salvation by grace through faith in Christ. But obedience is not legalism. Obedience doesn't say, I'm going to do this to earn God's favor. Obedience says, I have received God's favor, so this is how I'm going to live. Obedience doesn't say, well, I'm going to do this so God will save me. Obedience says, God has saved me, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to live for Him. Obedience doesn't say, I'm going to do this so God will love me. Obedience says, God loves me, and I love Him, so I'm going to obey. And Jesus, better than anyone, connects the idea of obedience to love in a way that is 
clear. You know, a lot of times in Scripture, some things are hard to understand. But Jesus' words in John 14, they're not. I mean, look at what He says. If you love Me, keep My commandments. I mean, that is a simple, a simple, succinct sentence. If you love Me, what do you do? Sing songs, tell the world, make Facebook posts, share this one picture. Or do you obey Him? Well, Jesus says that that's what you do. You, you obey Him. He goes on. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it's He who loves me. Again, that's significant. Who are the people? You look at the world and you say, how do we know who loves Jesus? Well, according to Jesus, the people that love Him, it's not the people that say I love Him and do whatever they want to do in their lives. It's not necessarily the people that give the best testimonies. It's not necessarily the people that that go on TV or are famous. The people who love Jesus, according to Jesus, are those who has His commandments and keeps them. The end. If we love Jesus, we keep His commandments. That's what He says. Those are the ones who loves Him. Now, we say, well, is that saying that if I don't keep His commandments, that I don't love Jesus no matter what I feel or what I say? Well, Jesus makes it awkward because He says yes. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. So if I love him, what will I do? I will keep his commands. Father will love him, will come to him, make our home with him. But here's this part. He who does not love me does not keep my words. So what if I stand up and I give this big weepy testimony about how great Jesus is and all that he means to me. And then I leave church and I I live how I want to live and don't care about what he says or what the word says or how... He is determined I'm supposed to live. Do I love Him? Not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus, I don't. Those who do not obey, do not love Him. And that's not my interpretation. That's just the plain reading of what Jesus Himself says. And so our desire to obey God's Word isn't based upon our need to make ourselves righteous. It isn't based upon our need to earn God's favor. It's because He loves me and I love Him. And I do all that I do because I love Him. And if we miss this aspect of what it is to be obedient to God's Word, we are going to really miss a lot. Because if we come to the Bible and we see it as this rule book, And we have to find this ten checklist to follow. These ten things to do. To be righteous. To be good. To be loved. To to experience grace. If we come to it in that way, the Bible becomes a book of burdens. I mean, how many of us know that the things that we have to do, we end up hating doing. But the things that we love to do are a joy to us in our lives. To me, this became really clear to me in in the army. When I first joined the army, being a soldier was the greatest thing that there was. The fact that I got to live in Germany and then be in the 101st Airborne Division, it was like my dream come true. All of my childhood culminated in this one thing. It was the best thing. It was all I'd ever imagined. And then there was this day. And so because I I loved the army, I did all this stuff. I spit shined my boots every night. I read my army manuals. Every night. I starched my uniforms every night. I kept a high and tight and I got my hair cut every week. I mean, I was as 
whatever the picture of a perfect soldier was, I tried my best. If my PT score wasn't high enough, I did extra PT. I did whatever it took. Then there was a day and something changed. And I didn't want to be in the army and be a soldier anymore. And suddenly, things changed in what I did. You know, the army doesn't actually require you to spit shine your boots. You can brush shine them and, and the army's okay with that. You don't have to start your uniforms. You can just kind of put them in the dryer and have what we call a puff-a-lump look where it was not wrinkly but not iron. And you could do, go with that. High and tight wasn't the standard that was required from us. And so I began to fall back. I, I didn't spit shine my boots. I went out and ran around rather than come in and read my manuals. I didn't have to do any of that stuff anymore because I didn't like the army. I was getting out at that point. And all that had happened was the same person. Was I went from love to duty. When I loved the army, I did all of that stuff, not because they required it, but because I wanted to be a good soldier. But when the love was gone and it was a duty, I did the bare minimum that I needed to do to get by. If we love Jesus, then His Word is not a burden to us. That's what 1 John says. But if we have, we miss that and we come to the Bible as a book of rules that we have to keep. It just becomes one burden after another. One thing we have to do after another. One hard thing, one difficult thing, one joy-sucking thing after another. And really in a lot of ways we can look at our attitude towards the Bible and towards obeying God. And we can get a pretty decent idea of our whether we are serving out of love or duty. Because when it's love, it's a joy. It's not a burden. When it's a burden, I'm serving and I'm doing out of a duty. We do not, God does not want His Word to be a burden. It is meant to rejoice the heart, Scripture says. So we must be sure that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Bible was given... To us, not just to fill our head with knowledge, but to transform our lives. Right? The ability of God's Word to, to change us, it is contingent upon our doing more than reading or listening, simply for knowledge. Right? Again, the psalmist prays, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and notice, and I will keep it. Give me understanding, and I shall keep it. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. This is why we want God to illuminate, to speak to us from His Word. Not so that I can go and argue with someone. Not so that I'll have a, a sledgehammer to use against someone in a Bible argument online. But so that I can change. That I can do what God would have me to do. That I would, if He'll teach me, I will run to keep His commandments. We should come to Scripture with a desire for God to use it to change our lives. And that does require us to follow Ezra's example. Come to the Word. Determined to do whatever God says through it. Not out of a legalistic sense of self-righteousness, but because we love Jesus and we want to be like Jesus. And that puts us in the right position. That bowing before the Lordship of Christ gives us the right attitude. Thy will be done in my life. And we come with the right desire to be like Jesus. And then we're in the right position with the right attitude and the right desire. God can put His hand on our lives and He can use us for His glory.
God's hand is on those who have a determined devotion to His Word. And a determined devotion is seen as we obey God's Word. And then finally, the last one, determined to share God's Word. Ezra was determined to seek the law of the Lord, to do the law of the Lord, and to teach the law of the Lord. He was going to teach others what God had shown him from His Word. He didn't just study for his own benefit. He wanted to help others understand what God had said about how to live and how to be. As a scribe, it was a pretty important part of his job. And it would be easy enough for us to say, well, that was Ezra. And he was a scribe, so certainly teaching is a part of his job. But I'm not a scribe and I'm not a teacher. But we are all expected to be able to share God's Word with others. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be able to share God's Word with other people. Now, this doesn't mean... They were going to preach sermons or teach lessons in front of a class. But it does mean that we would be able to to teach others to help them. If you remember from Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews, he actually rebukes the people for not being mature enough to be teachers, but still needing to be taught the very basic principles of the Word of God. Now, he didn't use the word teach. He didn't mean that everybody in the church was to hold a class and teach a Sunday school class. He meant... That every disciple that was full grown, had matured in the faith, would be able to to take the Bible and share with others. At the very minimum, the very minimum, they can share with others what God has shown them. Right? I was reading in my Bible, and look, it says that according to the good hand, that God's hand was upon him because he he prepared his heart to, to seek it, to do it, and to teach it. Isn't that great? Look at that. I mean, that's how we can help position ourselves to get God's hand on our lives. But to share what God has shown us from His Word. And also to be able to explain why we believe what we believe. I mean, as disciples of Jesus, we are meant to be able to defend our faith. That if someone asks us the reason for the hope that is within us, we are meant to be able to open up this book and say, because of this and this and this. We're also meant to be able to encourage other people. To strengthen them in a time of of need. To help them and comfort them and encourage them as they seek to live for Jesus as well. And and this isn't just for Bible teachers or pastors or Sunday school teachers. This is every disciple of Jesus is meant to be able to do this. Of course, if you look, this is kind of a... It's almost a progression, isn't it? Because I certainly can't share God's Word if I don't know it. And to know it, I have to study it. I can't live God's Word unless I know it and to know it, I have to study it. But if I share God's Word and I don't live it, most people aren't going to listen to me, are they? If they know I'm not living it, but I'm sharing it, they're just going to call me a hypocrite, dismiss me, and move on down the road. So if I really want to be effective as a disciple of Jesus, I have to study it. I have to live it. And then I'm free to be able to share it. And this is for all of us. This is what we're all meant to be able to do. Now let me give you some quick pointers as we seek to share God's Word. But one, and I'm sure I've talked about this before, but avoid cliche answers. As we share Scripture to help people, it's important that what we actually share is Scripture. Too often... What people share are spiritual sounding cliches and not actually scripture. 
And in some cases, these cliches can actually make things worse for the person we're trying to help. So some examples. God will never give you more than you can handle. Is that a true statement? No, it is not a true statement. The statement is based upon 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, but it refers to temptations, not hardships and trials. When it comes to hardships and trials, God will absolutely give us more than we can bear. We, we just need only go to Job, don't we? Who here thinks that any human could bear up under the loss of all of their wealth and all of their children over a two or three day time span and that be them be that strong to be able to deal with it on their own? I mean, we, anyway, I won't get into that. I'll stop there. Or, or Paul, 2 Corinthians. Talking about so many hardships were upon him, he despaired even of life. He was pressed above measure. What does that mean, above measure? More than he could stand. Now, so what happens is, we tell someone they're suffering. God will never give you more than you can stand. More than you can handle. And they think... I'm not handling this. So not only am I suffering a trial and a tribulation, but I'm failing God in the middle of this because I can't actually handle this. It's not the Bible. Don't give those sort of cliche-sounding answers. Share what Scripture actually says. Or, or just trust your heart. Now, that's a pretty common advice to hear when someone's seeking to make decisions, and yet it's completely contrary to Scripture. Now, scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Scripture says that the person who trusts their own heart is a fool. To tell someone to trust their heart is almost a guarantee that that person is going to make an ungodly, unbiblical decision. I couldn't tell you the number of people who wanted to leave their spouse because their heart was leading them away. It's not the Bible. The heart wants what it wants. I don't care what the heart wants. The heart is wicked and deceitful. And if you follow it, you're a fool, according to Scripture. You tell someone to follow their heart, we are most certainly setting them up for failure, hardship, and trials that they did not need to go through. Don't tell them that. It's not Scripture. Everything happens for a reason. Does everything happen for a reason? I don't believe Scripture teaches that everything happens for a reason. Unless the reason is we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world where bad things happen. Now, Scripture does teach that God is sovereign and that He is always in control and He can work all things for our good and His glory. But that in itself is not a guarantee that God is the reason it happened. Scripture does teach that God uses trials to forge Christ-like character in us. And sometimes God does send stuff into our life for that very reason. But I don't think you can accurately say God sends all the things that come into our lives for this purpose. Although it sounds spiritual and it sounds right. Because if you say God sends all of these things into our lives, this is the purpose for all of it, then what you have is God ordaining the molestation of children, the rape of women, and any, other, any number of other horrific accidents. All for His glory. And for the good of the person who experienced it. Now, Scripture does teach that God can work through the most horrific incident. And He can bring good out of it. Good for the person, good for His kingdom. But that doesn't make Him the reason behind it. 
that makes Him greater than our circumstances. Telling someone there's always a reason does not help. And often it makes matters worse because it's not truth. It's not Scripture. And and then a final one, and we'll move on and be through. And this is one that's a particular pet peeve of mine. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I know I've used that before. But I use this cliche to represent all the sayings that Christians have that sort of insult those enslaved to sin. There's more. You know, we can talk about shack up honeys or any number of things along those lines. Why is anybody going to buy the cow if they're getting the milk for free? All of those sort of things. And what they are is they're they're derogatory. They're they're insulting to the person that's enslaved by the sin. It doesn't help them. I mean, no one that's enslaved to this sort of sin hears that and goes, Oh, man, God loves me and I know there's a way out now. Instead, they get insulted. Instead, their flesh rises up and they push back against it. Often, it will harden their hearts against God because of silly, senseless, stupid, hateful things we have said. Those sort of cliches and insulting things are woefully inadequate. And they do nothing to help free people from being enslaved to sin. They do not help. They do not make it better. They make it worse. Don't say them because they're not Scripture. They're not true. So we avoid cliche answers and then we focus on the authority of Scripture. Trying to share Scripture with someone, help them from God's Word. Probably the most common phrase we should say is the Bible says or Scripture says. Because what they need to know is that you're not sharing your ideas and I'm not sharing my ideas. They need to know what the Bible actually says. And to say the Bible says or Scripture says keeps us honest because one, we're ensuring that we're actually saying it. And two, it helps them to know that what we're saying is the Bible. Now, the, another reason this is important is because if what we're saying is hard, right? someone doesn't want to hear it, they'll push back. And very often their pushbacks are kind of a trap. They're looking for a way to excuse or ignore what we have to say. And so they'll say something like, are you saying I'll go to hell if I don't believe in Jesus? Now, if we're not careful, what we'll say is, yes, that's what I'm saying. But if I say, yes, that's what I'm saying, what am I communicating to them? Well, that's my opinion on the subject. That's, That's kind of the trap. They're wanting you to say it in a way that would make it appear your opinion. So that they can say, oh, well, that's just your opinion. I don't believe like you do. Instead, we answer with, well, yeah, that's what the Bible says. Because when you say that's what the Bible says, and, and then you have to be able to kind of point to the verse that says it. Then what you can do is say, this isn't my opinion. Right? It's not my opinion that those who love Jesus obey his word. The Bible says it. Jesus said it. You're simply saying what Scripture says. And that's what we do if they ask about, are you saying this is a sin? That's what the Bible says. Here's where it says it. If they ask about eternity, spiritual issues, church, heaven, hell, marriage, you name it, the Bible speaks on it. Our answer should be the Bible says. Here's where the Bible says it at. And what we're doing by that is we're ensuring that we do not accidentally communicate to them 
that we're giving them our opinion. Because our opinions, our opinions don't matter. Our opinions don't change lives. Our opinions don't save souls. Our opinions do not help people find freedom in Christ. Truth, Scripture, that's what they need. They don't need my opinion. They don't need your opinion. They need Scripture. They need to know what did God say about this subject. God's hand is on those who have determined, who have a determined devotion to His Word. And a determined devotion to His Word is seen as we share God's Word. God's hand was on Ezra because He determined that He would study, that He would do, and He would share God's Word. Can you say tonight that God's hand is on you because you have a determined devotion to His Word? That's seen in your determination to study the Word, your determination to do the Word, and your determination to share the Word. If you want God's hand on your life, those things must be there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome.